Good morning. We are continuing our study in the book of Acts in chapter 9 this morning. Um, last week, uh, we just the most incredible picture of how God takes that which is desolate. He goes into the desolate wilderness and He brings life. And we saw that as uh, Philip brought the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. And this week, it's, it's a bit different. We're, we're looking at maybe one of the most famous passages in the book of Acts. Maybe one of the more... No, I would, I would argue the most famous conversion story in the Bible. Uh, and uh, this is, of course, the conversion of the Apostle uh, Paul. And so, as we go there, let's read the text. We'll be reading from chapter 9 of Acts. We're going to look at 9, uh, verses 1 to 31. Uh, we won't touch on every one of those verses, but we'll be looking at uh, that whole section. So, hear God's word. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belongings to the way, any any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul! Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, "Lord, I've, I've heard many things about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and he, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name." But the Lord said to him, "Go." For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. 
When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, and their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this amazing picture of your grace. Uh, Lord, the things that you do... Uh, never stop amazing us. And, and Lord, we just ask that you would amaze us anew, afresh, again, today, as we look at this, uh, we look at this uh, work of yours in the life of Saul. And Lord, strengthen our faith, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, sometimes it can be a challenge to come to a familiar text. You know what I mean? You've read it before. Um, it doesn't quite have the same wonder and amazement uh, that, that a, something you read for the first time. In fact, sometimes in such a familiar text, we even you know, start to just use it as a byword. or, a, or a, uh, It becomes almost colloquial. And, and this is the case with this text. We, we talk about Damascus Road experiences. And, and, we, and we apply that not just in the Christian context, but we apply that across the board. If someone has a radical transformation, they had a Damascus Road moment in their life. They went from one direction to another in their life, a complete transformation. Or we talk about someone seeing the light, right? They've seen the light. They've, they've, they now understand that aha moment. And a lot of this is drawn from this experience of Paul, of Saul of Tarsus. It's hard. It's hard to get our minds around and to have our hearts sort of opened up to a text that is so familiar. But there's a second challenge, I think, in this text as well, and that is Paul's conversion. Um, It is radical in its nature, right? John Newton transformed from a slave trader to a gospel preacher. Radical transformation. And there are those out there who've experienced this kind of movement of going one direction to a complete turnaround in the matter of a course of a day, or a course of a few hours, or a course of a, a short brief moment. Their lives are completely upended. But many of us, that's not our experience. Right? Uh, I grew up in the church. I can honestly say I don't remember a time or a day when I didn't at least know that God existed and that Jesus was a Savior. I may have rebelled against Him over the years, but there wasn't, there wasn't some radical transformation. And maybe some of you come to faith later, it was a slow, gradual thing, right? Sort of a wearing away of 
yourself. And so when you hear moments like this, these, these moments of great conversion, you can start to question, did I actually have a conversion experience? Is that important? Is that the most significant thing, to have this Paul-like moment of transformation? I, 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 there, I have a pastor friend who was... Uh, um, who is? He's a pastor friend who was a drug addict who spent time in prison. Um, and I always think, man, what would it be like to have his testimony and to be able to preach, right? I don't think I want his testimony. Well, these challenges are challenges for us hearing God speak this morning, but despite those challenges, there really is something absolutely magnificent and spectacular about this text. And, and that's why it's so familiar, because it is spectacular. My kids do this thing where they make me retell certain embarrassing stories of mine all the time. Why? Because they're spectacularly embarrassing, and they find a secret joy, a strange joy in the retelling of them. But when we hear the story of God doing a miraculous work and changing somebody who is opposed to Him, who is against Him, who is His enemy, who is His persecutor, change that person and make Him the greatest missionary the world has ever seen, that is something else of another order of spectacle. It causes wonder and awe and amazement at the, the grandeur of God and his, both His love and His power. How could a God who is holy and just pour his affection on a sinner like Saul? Who is a God like this? It causes us to wonder. So, what I want us to do today to kind of get at this wonder and awe, I'm not going to give you three points and kind of lay them out as I often do, but I just want this question to linger in our minds. Who is a God like this who saves a wretch like me, like Paul? Who is a God like this? So, let's jump into the text. Saul wanted to crush those who belonged to the way. We read that right here in the text. It says that he set out for Damascus with a note in hand from the synagogue giving him orders to bind anybody he found belonging to the way, men and women. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? One of the reasons I don't think we relate well to Saul or to this conversion story is because we don't really relate to the kind of wickedness of Saul. We've already met this man at the beginning of the last chapter when Stephen was arrested, tried, stoned by the Jewish leaders. Do you remember that? And we were told just a few words about Saul. He was a prominent person, a prominent uh, man, a Pharisee. He stuttered under Gamaliel. Remember, we learned a little bit about Gamaliel. Uh, he was somebody who presided over the stoning of Stephen. He sat there and was, was presiding over this execution. 
And then a few verses later, after uh, this execution of Stephen, we're told that Saul goes and he ravages this early church. He goes around house to house, dragging men, dragging women away from their children and throwing them in prison. How could anyone do that? Tear their mothers and fathers away from their children. How could anybody preside over a stoning, a bloody act? And here at the beginning of chapter 9, he's still at it. Paul, or I'm saying Saul, I'll get a comb, Saul is in transformation stage here. Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Did you hear it? It's a really curious turn of a phrase, isn't it? Breathing threats and murder. What, what is Luke getting at here? Does it mean that he was, he was muttering under his breath as he walked around, oh, those Christians, I want to kill them. And he was like kind of muttering under his breath, breathing these things out. Maybe. Or does it mean that this is what he breathed? This is what he was about. His whole being, his very breath, was caught up in this singular aim to destroy Christians, to put them to death, to put them in prison, to destroy the movement as a whole. It was what he lived and what he breathed. Maybe. Probably a little bit of both, because when you're consumed with something, you usually mutter about it under your breath. At least I do. If I'm thinking about something, I'm talking to myself about it, maybe that's just me. I don't know. Maybe you're different. But can you imagine being Luke? Imagine being Luke the very first time. Paul sitting probably in Rome or somewhere and Luke is a new Christian and he's learning all about the faith and, and, and Paul brings him aside and says, I want to tell you a story about a man named Saul. Yeah, I want to hear this man. I want to hear it. He goes through the story and gets to this point and Luke's eyes are wide because he realizes I'm sitting with a murderer. Somebody who ripped parents away from their children and put them in prison. I'm sitting face to face with this person. Paul, you? How could you do such a thing? It must have been a shocking thing to hear. It also seems as if Paul was being tasked here with dealing with Christians from Jerusalem in particular. And we read earlier that during this persecution, as Paul was going house to house, that the Christians fled, right? They went to Samaria. They went to other parts of of the Judean hillsides, if you will. And they went to places that were outside of Israel altogether. Places like Damascus, which was just on the border in Syria, Syria. And Saul has a list of people that ran, I'm sure. And he goes and gets written permission to go and to drag them, to literally bind them and to bring them back and to put them in prison. There was no distance too great for Saul to eradicate the plague of Christians who threatened their faith. In Saul's mind, it was the only way It's hard to relate to Saul, isn't it? 
He's a special kind of bad. The kind of bad that, that we root against in the movies. He's that bad. But I think that it's important that we try to relate to Him in this. I think that's an important thing. I think it's somewhat tempting to write him off. He must have been uh, a sociopath or something like that. But I actually think he's exactly the opposite of a sociopath. He is a principled, moral, upstanding Jewish man at the very height of morality in his world. And he, he acknowledges this himself. He, he points this out. If we go to Philippians chapter 3, he says this of himself. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, what? A persecutor of the church. It was part of... His righteousness. What he was doing in his mind was obedience to God. Being blameless and upright and righteous and zealous for the character of God. In fact, as we've seen from his own words, he was persecuting on principle because these Christians, in his mind, were blasphemers. It was his duty to pursue them. Leviticus 24.16 said this, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Paul wasn't some crazy sociopath. He was an eager beaver. He was zealous. He was upright, righteous in his mind. Saul, in his mind, was on the way of the Lord, the path of righteousness, and it was leading him to Damascus. Luke describes here for the first time in Acts, Christians as those belonging to the way. He Luke will use this phrase again later in the book of Acts, but this is the first time we see it. For Jesus himself had said in the, in the Gospels, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For Saul, this must have burned him. How could they cry out, the way? It's not the way. That's the path of destruction. That is the exact opposite of the way. You can see in Saul's mind that this, there was audacity. This is where I want us to think about ourselves being like Saul. It is the nature of our sin to think of ourselves as arbiters of truth and justice. We are masters, masters at forming our world and thinking of ourselves. Yeah, yeah, we may make a few little mistakes here and there. But we are not anything compared to others around us. We are masters of looking at our world through our lens and becoming the arbiters of both truth and justice, justifying our actions while justifying or while judging others. I mentioned Luke being aghast the first time he heard Paul's story. 
After all, Luke was a doctor. He was a healer. Uh, Here he was sitting face to face with someone who was in the business of taking people's lives. And yet I don't think, I have no, nothing to ground this in, I don't have any scripture reference, but I doubt that Luke looked at Paul in a lesser way. He looked at Paul and he sympathized with Paul. As Paul recounted the horror of his past to Luke, I'm sure Paul did it with tears, and I'm guessing Luke cried right along with him. Why? Why do we do that when someone shares their brokenness and their sin with us? As a believer, what does it do? It causes us to have great empathy and sympathy for that person because we, we know, but for the grace of God, that's exactly where I would be. If we're honest with ourselves, we're honest with our hearts, we've thought of worse things to do than Paul. We've muttered murder and curses. Now, we may not have had the means to act on those things. Paul had all the means available to him. And we may not have all the justifications. Paul could could rip Scripture out of context and, and apply it and not understand its full significance. He had that going for him. So we don't always act on our impulses. But those impulses are still deeply rooted in ourselves, in our sin, in our fallen nature. But for the grace of God, we wouldn't be any different. It's in our hearts. It's in our breath. Maybe it isn't murder, but it's lust. It's jealousy. It's pride. Selfishness. Whatever it is, it has the same roots and the same results. Not the same exact results, not the same fruit. It looks a little different, but it has the same ends, right? It has the same end in destruction. It ends in judgment. And the crazy thing is, in the midst of our sin, we're so blind to it, we call evil good. This is what Saul does. He's being zealous for God as he destroys and persecutes Christ. It's his aim in Christians. So Saul was on his way to Damascus where he was stopped in his tracks. We read that a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What do you think was going through Paul's mind? Saul's mind? Simon's, whatever, you know what I mean. What do you think was going through his mind? He says, who are you, Lord? But I think that was just a sort of a time saver. Do you know what I mean? Like, like he was just kind of uh, suddenly shocked. We've got to remember, Paul is not a modern man who would have been sort of like, oh my goodness, what's going on? God is speaking. I think he was a man of his times. He was a, a Pharisee, a religious man. He would have expected in some sense that God could speak and might speak to him in some way. But here he is now, face to face with the glory of Christ in all his splendor, facing him. What do you think he felt? There is a 
are certain bathroom mirrors I hate. Uh, this is really strange, but they're the ones with the really, really bright lights. I think they're used in, you know, for, for like movies and stuff, for putting on makeup or whatever it is. Have you ever looked at one of those? You see everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? You see, you see all your wrinkles as they get old, all your gray hair, all your blemishes, all of it. And of course, the purpose of that is so that you can see it, so you can put makeup on and cover it up or whatever it is do your hair, whatever. Expose us. And we call that light garish. I love that. There are words out there like garish. Obtrusively bright or harsh is what the word means. That light does not compare in any way to the radiance of Christ. Is it exposed Saul in all his broken, sinful rebellion against his Lord and King? As he was there exposed before Christ, he was broken down on the ground as a man who was about to be destroyed. And Jesus says, Why are you persecuting me? And say, why are you persecuting my sheep? Why are you persecuting me? You said that because Christ's people are so intimately connected. We're called His body. He's our head. The things that, that are done against Christ's body, against His sheep, are done against Christ Himself. So the sin that Paul was committing was against Jesus, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And this is where the story becomes really, really amazing. This is where I get overwhelmed with our Savior. Who is a God like this who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve? He doesn't say, get up, Saul, you're about to face your Maker. He doesn't get up, or he doesn't squash Saul right there. He says, get up, Saul. Follow me. Rise. Not to face the wrath of God, not to face instantaneous death, but to rise and to go into the city. To go on the way, but not the way Paul thought he was going. He was going on the way. A man who was changed from going down the path of destruction to the way of life. And Stahl, when he got up, he couldn't see He had to be shown the way. And his compatriots were dumbfounded. They heard something and they saw no one. What's going on? Here's our our fearless leader groveling on the ground and and he's stumbling around and he gets up and he can't see. What, What is going on? I often think when Christ first begins to work on our hearts, it's often like this, isn't it? Our world... The things that we thought of as most significant, as most important, get turned on their head. It shakes us to the core. It causes us to question everything, the foundations. It's as if we can't see anymore because all the things that we thought we saw were wrong and now we're, in some sense, wondering, where do I go? What do I do now? I don't know. Maybe you've had that moment in your life. You see... Encounter with the glory of Christ shakes us to the core. Now, 
Paul's conversion is radical in one sense. Bright lights, voice from heaven, blindness. Very unique. But in another sense, when Christ confronts any of us and exposes our sin, we can't help. We can't help but be undone. Not only do we start to see the things that we do as against one another, but all of a sudden our hearts are exposed to see that what we are really doing is violence against our Creator and our Lord. What do you do when you're in that state? Lord, lead me. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Saul enters Damascus still in shock. (laughs) Not eating. Not drinking. Not seeing. And for three days, he's in this state. It's as if he is dead. And and I don't doubt Saul and Luke, as Luke was writing this down, wrote these words that he was for three days in this state of death, if you will, to old self-death. I don't think that they didn't see the parallel. Here was Saul dying and rising again. Yes, it wasn't the final resurrection. Paul, like all of us, awaits the final resurrection. But Paul was being born again. He was broken down. His life was dead, but he was being raised up in newness of life. Regenerated. And what does the Lord do? He sends a disciple to him, Ananias. No correlation, by the way, to the Ananias that we saw earlier, who was struck down immediately. A tough passage that we read uh, for stealing from the Lord. Different Ananias. He sent Ananias. Why did Saul send Ananias? Couldn't Christ have just healed his sight without him? Couldn't he have had this moment? Sure. The Lord sent Ananias, yes, for Paul's sake. It was for Paul to be welcomed into the body, if you will, for Paul to be healed of his blindness. But it was also for Ananias' sake and for the believer's sake. Ananias, when he's asked to go, he questions Christ in a pretty subtle way. He says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he, and I hear, and here he has all authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on his name. Call on your name. It was like, he didn't say, no, Lord. Ananias wasn't quite so bold as that. But he did kind of say, Lord, are you sure? And this is really what was going through his mind. Really? Saul of Tarsus? You really want me to bring about divine uh, uh, healing, not divine revenge? Maybe what you meant is you want me to go to heal his eyes so that I can poke him out again. You see, I think we, we love to sing Amazing Grace. But not for people like Saul. Do you know what I mean? 
You're finding an amazing grace. You love hearing stories, but not for that person that is beyond grace. Do you have people like that in your life? Ananias. My grace is for you, broken Ananias, sinner that you are. And my grace is for Saul of Tarsus, who is a God like this. Saul was reviled by the church. He was probably the most hated man, more than probably the emperor of Rome or the high priest. Why? Because he was the henchman, right? He was the guy who did the dirty work. He was the one who made all of the persecution happen. But as we think about the amazingness of grace... What makes it so amazing is we start to think about it. When we start to think about how God can save a wretch like Saul or like that difficult person that we know, I think what we really need to be asking the question, how could God love me? And when we start to see that He does, that His grace is sufficient, even for the things that I have thought about, the sin that I have committed, that God loves me. Wow. And of course, Saul of Tarsus. Why not? Christ sent Ananias for his sake and for the sake of the church that we would wonder more at a God who saves the worst of sinners. Paul will later call himself chief of sinners. But who here this morning can stand before the glaring splendor of Christ and say otherwise? Who is a God like this who saves a wretch like me? <laughs> but it wasn't enough for, for Christ to save Saul and be done with it. He was going to totally transform Saul. Now, Saul, I think in God's way of sanctifying him, the Lord says that he is going to learn what it means to suffer for my sake. I think, I think the Lord knew that was necessary for Saul, to get at least a small taste of the pain that he caused others. Not, not out of retribution, not in order to pay some penalty, not for any of those reasons, but so that Saul could be a better witness, have more sympathy and more hope and more love for the persons he was ministering to. And so that's what the Lord says. To Ananias says, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And then... Saul, Ananias goes to Saul and immediately after Ananias says, speaks to him says, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. What, a, what a, an incredible scene this would have been. 
Paul's eyes open to the glories of the gospel. But, you know, I love the scene in, in uh, um, oh, the, any scene like this in, in the movies, but this one in particular, uh, Scrooge, Ebenezer, you know, at the end of uh, The Christmas Carol. He, he's a transformed man and he's leaping and jumping and giving money to the poor and running around town as a man transformed. I, 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 this is kind of what Paul's like here. He's a man that's going off and he, he can't help but go and proclaim the good news of the gospel. And he goes into the synagogues. And can you imagine the scene of him in the synagogues in Damascus? The Jews are like, finally, Paul's here. Saul's here. And he's going to take care of these Christians who are causing us trouble. And Saul says, Jesus is Lord. Jaw drops. Dead silence. Saul, what are you talking about? And, and Saul is he's transformed. He's a new man, but he is the same Saul, right? He goes in there and it says that he confounded them. He debated with them. He showed them. He took his Bible and he went to the Old Testament and he said, See Jesus! See Jesus! See Jesus! And he proved to them they didn't necessarily believe. He was the same Saul. Except now... He was a proclaimer of the truth of the gospel. And he was full of grace and mercy and he was pouring that out. Who is a God like this that takes broken sinners and makes them his instruments of grace and uses them for his glory to proclaim the good news of the gospel? Who is a God like this that takes me, a broken sinner, and puts him up here in front of you? It makes no sense. Who is a God like this that takes you all, transforms you, by a spirit makes you his servants, his people. Who is a God like this? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's overwhelming. Your grace is overwhelming to think about. And we don't understand why you love us. But we know that you do, and that you show us that in Christ. And we marvel at your goodness and your grace, and the way that you you take broken sinners, rebels, enemies of yours, and you transform them, and you change them, and you make them agents, instruments of your grace. Lord, oh, that we would relish the way you work. Oh, Lord, change us. Make us new. Cause us to see our sin for what it is and help us to run to you the way, the truth, the life. We pray this through Christ our Savior. Amen.